The scripture for today's sermon comes from Matthew 2, 1 through 6, 10 and 11. The word of God speaks to us. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when he, it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel." When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is God's word to us. Good morning. Good morning and happy new year. Nice to see you all here this morning. We weren't quite sure what this uh, morning would look like after New Year's Eve, but it's so good to see you. This is not only the first day of the year, but this is also uh, Sunday when we uh, observe Epiphany. Now, uh, Corey had mentioned that we have all the decorations up and the candles are still lighted because we're still in the Christmastide season. Uh, which begins on Christmas Eve and goes to January 6th, where we observe Epiphany. And Epiphany is the feast that commemorates, uh, uh, looks at, holds precious and dear the incarnation, the revelation of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, specifically to the Gentiles, uh, which is us. So that's good news. And in Epiphany, we uh, spend some time looking at the three wise men, which is where I'm going to uh, share from today in our reading. Uh, unlike the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Matthew does not tell us about the shepherds coming to visit Jesus in the stable. Instead, he starts right off with telling the story of foreigners, Gentiles, non-Jews coming from the east to worship Jesus. So Matthew portrays Jesus at the beginning of his gospel and also at the end of his gospel as a Messiah for all generations, for all nations, for all people, not just the Jews. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so uh, I'll come to more of that later. When I was a kid, we used to have a Christmas play like many churches do every year and like many kids take uh, part of. And for me, it was more of going through the performance, the motions, the uh, waiting for the big day of Christmas morning when I could open presents. So the Christmas play at our church felt much like a performance with the pressure of rehearsal, uh, with trying to sing hymns on key as a small boy, at least to some degree on key, uh, and then uh, getting my cheeks pinched by little old ladies who called me cute, which who wants to be called your cute when you're a little boy, you know, by a little old lady. So that was, that was my experience. 
And uh, uh, all of these things overshadowed the message of the gospel to me. We would sing, away in a manger, little drummer boy, hark the herald angels sing. It was syrupy, sweet, and sentimental, and as boys, uh, we made fun of it because of this. Here in this setting of a barn, because there was no room in the inn, was Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, and a bunch of animals. The angels rejoiced and told unnamed shepherds that something really wonderful had happened in Bethlehem. Luke's gospel says that they were filled with great fear and were told, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. Okay, so far so good in our Christmas play, and though it was just a Christmas play, it all made sense and felt appropriate. It was a rural setting. Uh, They were in the country. Mary and Joseph were poor. The shepherds were poor. They were in a barn. There were animals. Okay, I get it. But then in the story, there come these three wise men, you know, interstage left. The three wise men come in. They came from a distant land in the east and brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And at this point in our play, we would attempt to sing, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar, filled and fountain more and mountain following yonder star. However, being ornery boys who made fun of sentimentality, we called them the three wise guys, Larry, Moe, and Curly. And we changed the words in our rehearsal to, we three kings of Orient are trying to smoke a rubber cigar. It was loaded and it exploded and that's how we traveled so far. Now we would have never sang that in the actual play, but in rehearsal it was really fun to watch our choir director squirm. So who were these wise men and why do they matter? Where was this distant land in the east? Were they just an add-on to the story, or are they noteworthy to the narrative? To explore this question and identify these three wise men, we need to step further back another 600 years from the birth of Christ to the era of the Babylonians. Here we meet a young man named Daniel who was taken away to Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, besieged it, destroyed it, and took away the noblemen and women to Babylon to serve the king. So here in Babylon, we meet Daniel, and we know Daniel, we're familiar with Daniel because of the book of the same name in the Old Testament. It's an excellent book, and I encourage you to read it. Uh, And here we see Daniel. He was taken as a Jew into exile. As we explore Babylon, in addition to Daniel, we also meet three other characters, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you're a VeggieTale fan, Rakshak and Benny. (laughs) These four young men eventually gained for themselves a reputation for being wise trustworthy and valuable 
to the kingdom of Babylon. In the course of their service to the king, they are promoted to prominence and influence among all of the other wise men of Babylon. But however, in this point, at this point of our story, they are newbies and novices in the king's court, surrounded by older trusted advisors to the king. And then this happens. Over a period of several nights, Nebuchadnezzar had very disturbing dreams, so troubling and fearfully, in fact, that he can't sleep and he refuses to speak it out loud. Instead, he makes a call to his wise men and he demands that they provide, count, they, they provide him the contents of the dream and the interpretation. The wise men of Nebuchadnezzar's court respectfully and fearfully plead with the king and tell him, this is impossible. No one can do this. Now, it's not really good to, uh, you know, to call a, an egotistical king crazy, but, but that's kind of what they did. Lord, no one can do this. Then they push back even further and tell the king that his demands are something that no other king has ever asked for. And with their voices wavering and cracking, very cautiously they whisper to him, no one but the gods could show the dream to them, and since they don't live among us, we have no hope of knowing what you dreamt. Now, you might have thought Nebuchadnezzar was angry before. He was very troubled by the dream, but now he's furious. His wise men have said what he's asking is impossible. It cannot be done. Sorry, no can do. You thought your boss was hard to deal with at times. Let's look at what Nebuchadnezzar did. In his anger, he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be executed immediately. I've had it with these guys. Now, the Aramaic word used for execution in this is destroyed. That's pretty deep. That's pretty harsh. Destroyed. That's executed with numerous exclamation points afterwards. So King Nebuchadnezzar is really, really upset. He's in an angry tirade. Now at this point, Daniel becomes even more important to the story. He pulls his friends and fellow young wise men close and tells them to pray that God would give him both the dream and the interpretation for this raging King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, we need to pray like our lives depend on it, because they do. God does indeed share both the dream and the interpretation with Daniel, and he then gains audience with the king to cool him down, says, so okay, you know, God has answered, and give the king the contents of the dream as well as the interpretation. And we read in Daniel 2, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, 
the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not even a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a mighty mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Wow, that really was some dream. We can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's jaw dropped and his shoulders drooped as he heard it. That's exactly what I dreamt. And he was shaking in his boots. This is exactly what I had seen. Okay, Daniel now has his attention, and their lives are spared. Daniel then gives the interpretation that the kingdoms of this world, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, would one by one, an accession one to another, become less and less glorious and more and more fragile until the day when a stone cut out without human hands would smash the feet of the great statue and blow them away like chaff without a trace. But the stone that struck the statue would become a mighty mountain and fill the whole earth. As Daniel presented this interpretation, he was honored and promoted. Nebuchadnezzar gave him a position of being one of the chief wise men. He became a man of prominence in the king's court, and his tenure lasted for decades throughout many successive kings and kingdoms. Because of this, he was able to influence the wise men of the court and retell this story of the coming king who would rule over all the earth. A king is coming whose kingdom will never end. And to confirm Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream, Daniel has a vision as recorded in chapter 7 that had to create excitement in those who were oppressed and fear in the heart of those who oppressed. He says this, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is great news. This is great news. We can imagine that Daniel often spoke of this coming kingdom that shall never be destroyed, a king who would rule forever. This prophetic narrative took root in the hearts and the minds and the expectations and the imaginations of the wise men in the court of the kings and was passed down from generation to generation for centuries, leading up to the birth of Christ. So now let's travel forward again, 600 years, 
where we come to the stable and we see that the Christ has been born. The Magi have come, these three unnamed wise men, they see a star. And because of Daniel's testimony that was passed down from generation to generation for centuries, they knew exactly what this meant. Oh, this is the stone cut out not from human hands. It's going to strike the feet of the kingdoms of this earth and grow to be a mighty mountain. This is the chief cornerstone that the builders would eventually reject that would become the chief cornerstone, the most important one, the focal point of all history. The proclamation found in Revelation 11 is that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. This is why the three wise men came from the east. This is why they come into the story, because they were watching and waiting, longing and looking for this king, and here he is. Do you remember our three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that Nebuchadnezzar renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? In chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a gold statue of his image, and he demands under threat of death that all of the Babylonians worship him. And these three wise men refuse to bow to a false god, refuse to bow to this golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and because of that, they are thrown into a fiery furnace and they are to be burned, they're to be executed. And Nebuchadnezzar stands at the side of this furnace looking for them to get what's coming to them. But instead, these three wise men are in the fiery furnace, and they're untouched. They're, they're unharmed. The only thing that burned were the ropes around their arms, and they didn't even smell like smoke when they were brought out. But Nebuchadnezzar was watching from the side, and he looked, and he said, wait a minute, didn't we just put three men into this furnace? But I see a fourth, and his appearance is like the Son of God. So here, in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, we have three wise men and the Son of God. As we look at the birth of Jesus in Matthew, we have the powerful testimony of the three wise men who did bow, not to a false god, but to the real God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one and true King Jesus. In Matthew, we see again three wise men who beheld the Christ child in true worship as Jesus was born into our world. And again, and so beautifully so, we see three wise men and the Son of God. The Magi, the three wise men, are not an afterthought. The Magi represent the Gentile nations coming to Christ. They are us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, unto them a light has shone. They're us. Peter told the crowd after Christ had risen from the dead that the forgiveness of sin and the filling of the Holy Spirit was a promise for those near and for those far 
all of those whom the Lord would call unto Himself. This is really excellent news because we are those who were far off. We were those who had no hope. We were outsiders, and, and we, were, we were beyond hope, but He brought us unto Himself. And here today, we stand between the times. We live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, but as sure as the stone crushed the feet of the statue and it became nothing and it was blown away like chaff, so surely will God's kingdom come in fullness and every eye will see Him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. The stone cut out not from human hands has become a mighty mountain and filling the whole earth. That's why we're here. Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, you and I, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken." The reality is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God had a collision with the kingdoms of this world. And which one do you think stands firm? It may not seem like it now, but all of the kingdoms and governments of this world will one day fall, and only one remains forever. Today, in casual conversation, no one talks about King Nebuchadnezzar. And when was the last time you met a Babylonian? They're gone, blown away like chaff. Today, on social media, we're not talking about King Herod, no matter how important he was or how important he thought he was. What we're talking about today are not the kings that have passed away and the kingdoms that have been blown away like chaff. What we're hearing about is the wise men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel's day. What we're observing today on this Epiphany Sunday is the Magi, the three wise men who came bearing gifts as they bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ as a babe. Seemingly insignificant, seemingly unimportant, seemingly uneventful, but literally the focal point of all history, all time, past, present, and future. So since this is true, then we need to ask ourselves these questions as we step into this new year. The first question is, how shall we then live? If this is true, which it is, how should we live? The kingdom of God has been given to us in the now and not yet as a down payment. More is yet to come. The kingdom of our God will crush the kingdoms of this world, and only one kingdom remains for all eternity. 
So since this is, show, is so, since the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and Jesus Christ, how should we live? Since all that we see is temporary and will eventually dissolve and pass away on the great day when our Lord Jesus returns, how should we then live? What manner of life should we lead in holiness and godliness in pursuit of our Lord? Are we watching? Are we longing? Are we waiting? Are we looking? It may seem that His promises are long in coming true, but His promises always come true. Just as surely as the, the, the stone cut from not human hands crushed the statue, so too is He coming again. He is coming again. The writer of the book of Hebrews exhorts us this way, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I want to be consumed by Him. Kevin did such a great job a couple of weeks ago in reminding us of the hope of the gospel from 2 Peter 3 that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, as we wait for Him, as we long for Him. So as the Magi looked for the star on the first coming of Christ, are we also looking for the bright morning star to come again? Are we setting our affections on Him? So how shall we then live? The second question that we must ask is how are we proclaiming God's works to the next generation? Psalm 145 says, one generation will commend your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty deeds. How are we living in a manner worthy of what has been given to us? How are we standing firm in one spirit together side by side for the faith of the gospel? How are we giving this away to others? How are we passing on the story, cultivating expectancy of Jesus' return? Will generations follow us, following us be looking for His coming? Francis Schaeffer uh, boldly challenges us this way, God's Word will never pass away, but looking back to the Old Testament and since the time of Christ, with tears we must say that because of a lack of fortitude and faithfulness on the part of God's people, God's Word has many times been allowed to be bent, to conform to the surrounding, passing, changing culture of that moment, rather than to stand as the inerrant Word of God, judging the form of the world's spirit and the surrounding culture of that moment. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, may our children and grandchildren not say that such can be said about us. So we've been given a sacred trust, the mystery of the gospel. Let's hold it as sacred. Stand on the Word of God. And then lastly, the question that comes to us is, will we bow giving our gifts to Christ? The wise men left their home and embarked on a difficult journey that brought them to the feet of Jesus. Will we do the same? We only have one life one hope. Paul told the elders in Ephesus who cautioned him to play it safe 
He said, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So much that we invest in will fall. What will stand? What will last? Where are you investing yourself? Where are you investing your life? As I stand here today, I'm mindful that I'm 62 years old. I know, you thought I was 30. I'm 62 years old. I remember in my 20s going to a conference and hearing a pastor speak to us young men and women in his 60s. He was standing there, and I thought, man, that guy's old. But he was, he was speaking words that pierced our hearts. He said, live life on purpose for God. Don't let anything come in between you and your Savior. Don't let any sin, any distraction uh, take you away from your calling in Christ. Contend for it. Be men and women of, of valor in faith. Follow Jesus. Make your life count. And so now, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He's beholding the face of Jesus now. And I'm that old guy. Man, life went fast. Now I'm up here. And I'm the old guy telling you, hey, make your life count for Jesus. You know, don't let anything hold you back. The days are short. They feel long. You know, they feel long. The years go by, uh, the days go by slowly, but the years go by fast. They really do. So make your life count. The challenge is still true, and C.T. Studd captures the importance this way. Only one life... Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. So what do we do with that? Let me invite you, as you go into 2023, to hold on to the tension of these two thoughts, these two uh, challenges for you. The first is, uh, be content to live in the sacred ordinary. Be content to live in the day by day where God's mercies are new every morning. Let us honor God in our singleness, in our marriages as husbands and wives, in our parenting as we pass on the story of redemption to our children and to those around us in our sphere of influence. Let our, the work of our hands in employment or in our businesses honor God because everything matters. Nothing is outside of the scope of God's uh, involvement. And He sees all. And it all matters. Everything that you put your hands to matter. So worship the Lord in the day by day. And in the midst of that, make a, make a commitment and ask the Lord to help you to take moments of prayer, moments of reading His Word, feasting upon His Word, because this is how we're formed. This is how we're changed. This is how we withstand the, uh, the counterformation of our culture that's pushing in on us, that's trying to form us into its image when we really want to be formed in the image of Jesus Christ Himself. So hold on to that. 
We often speak of the tensions here at Frontline. We're okay with tensions of word and spirit, of the now and not yet of the kingdom. So hold on to these tensions. The first one, as I mentioned, be content to live in the sacred ordinary. But the second one that we must hold on to is, but let's not be satisfied to only do that. Let's pray big prayers. Let's dream big dreams. Let's, not, uh, let's cry out to God in desperation, wanting more of His Spirit. Let's take big risks for His kingdom. We are invited to know that He can do abundantly beyond what we can ask or think or imagine according to the power at work within us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead? Man, that's power. So let's ask big, right? Let's ask big. Let's think big. Let's imagine big because all things were created for Him and through Him and by Him, and He holds all things together. So we want to dream big. We want to be on mission. Lord, wherever you want to go, we want to say like Paul, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it to finish the calling that the Lord has given me to proclaim the gospel in word and life and deed. For His kingdom is coming in fullness. Jesus is the stone that would become a mighty mountain filling the entire earth. The three wise men saw this chief cornerstone lying in a manger and worshiped Him. We have seen the stone in our day looking back What they saw is a stone. We've seen that stone become a mighty mountain that's filled the whole earth. That's why we're here. That's why we are sons and daughters of the Most High. We are moving towards the fullness of seeing Revelation 5, where every tribe and tongue and nation and language surrounding His throne, worshiping as the redeemed people of God. I remember being in a church in Bangkok, and we were sitting there in the service worshiping and, and worshiping in Thai, and I had a, had a vision where we were in this sanctuary in Bangkok, and we moved just a little higher, and I could hear not only Christians in Thailand worshiping in their language, but Christians in Cambodia worshiping in their language, a little higher. We could hear Laos and Burma and and people of of Southeast Asia. And a little higher, I felt like the Lord took me, and I heard worshipers from Europe joining the, the beautiful song. And then worshipers all over the world in their language, in their tongue, in their beautiful expression of worship, filling the whole earth, surrounding His throne, worshiping as the redeemed people of God. That's, that's who we are. That's where we're going is every tribe and tongue and nation and language surrounding His throne of worship. I want to close with this as we move towards communion. John wrote this to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, 
To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for thank you for the way that you have drawn us to yourself. We were once not a people, but now we are a people. We were once those who had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And it was enough, Lord, that we would be forgiven of our sins and to brought into your kingdom, but you would have asked us to stay outside in the court, not come into your throne room. But Lord, you even went further and you said, come in, come all the way in, come all the way in. You who are far off, come all the way into my throne room. Fear not, little flock, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we are humbled by your presence today, Lord. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. And so, Lord, we look back to this past year and we thank you for the evidences of grace where you've met us time and time again. Lord, those moments when it was so clear and so obvious that you were there. And Lord, we also praise you for those moments, those times, those places of need that we didn't even know you were working behind the scenes for our good. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you're forming us into the image of your Son so that we'll be like you when we see you and when we behold you face to face. We dedicate this coming year to you, Lord. We want to be men and women on mission. We want to be men and women consumed by you, our God, the consuming fire. Holy Spirit, come. Pour out your presence upon us in this year. Let us see wonderful things, Lord. Let us be faithful in the small, but let us see the big, Lord. Let us see the big picture, Lord. We have heard, Lord, of your glory in days gone by. We want to see it again. Do it again in our day. Pour out your presence upon our city. Pour out your presence upon our nation. Lord, will you uh, glorify yourself in our midst, God? Amen.